You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. We just had this general interest in fly fishing, and we had an interest in business and leadership in general, uh, especially a whole mentoring side of things. Something I think we we uh, simultaneously get enjoyment out of. And so the two of us banged our heads against the wall a little bit on some ideas and then came up with this concept of, you know, let's interview um, executive leaders from the fly fishing community and have them tell the stories of what they've learned on the river and how it's applied to business and vice versa, what they've learned in business and how it's applied to the water. And so we really just dove in. We we ended up interviewing uh, 70 plus uh, executives from around the globe and then getting notes from that and inserting it into the book as excerpts. We've got Christian Bacasa on the line tonight out of Park City, Utah. Now, Christian has co-authored a book along with John Childress. It's called Fly Fishing for Leadership. Pretty interesting stuff. Has interviewed some of the top leaders, business leaders in the fly fishing world. Some commonalities between the water and the boardroom. Some pretty interesting stuff that's coming your way next. Want to thank the folks for listening in the following cities. Top cities this week for downloads in first place was Los Angeles, California, followed by Omaha, Nebraska, Maple Ridge, British Columbia, Burlington, Ontario was next, along with Vancouver, B.C., then Salt Lake City, Utah, Pitt Meadows, B.C., Seattle, Washington, Mississauga, Ontario, Rettsburg, Idaho, and Christiansburg, Virginia. Thanks, folks, for listening. Appreciate it. Also want to let you know that Christian was good enough to say, hey, if you listen to this podcast, you like, you want to download this book, you want to order this book, he is offering 30% off for Fly Fishing 97 podcast listeners. All you have to do, it's uh, basically the promo code is FLYFISH97. If you enter that when you order his book, you'll get 30% off. So thanks, Christian, for that. Appreciate it. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. We are going to head out to Park City, Utah. We've got a friend of the show, Christian Bacasa. He is back. We've had him on before. He uh, is with the guys at Dupafish, but he's uh, doing something exciting right now. He's got a book that's just hit the market. Uh, it is called Fly Fishing for Leadership. Now, we're going to get into Christian's story, and he's got quite a story. Uh, and he chases fins all over the place. We'll get into where he's been fishing, what he's been up to. We'll talk endurance, athletics, climbing, skiing, mountaineering, fly fishing, you name it in this one. Christian, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, really appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having me back. How are you? Have you been all right? Um, doing well, doing Good. well. Uh, lots of things going on in life, and I think uh, busy life is a happy life these days, right? Especially yeah. with all this 
this COVID uh, nasting that's going around. Hundred percent. Well put. So let's uh, let's talk about your book, Fly Fishing for Leadership. Now, um, why don't you first off walk us through the journey of writing this book? Talk to me about, and I know you co-authored this with John, which you can speak to, but um, tell me about the writing process and kind of what made you kind of put uh, pen to paper or you know fingers to keyboard to get this going. Yeah, um, I think you know a lot of people out there have that dream of writing a book someday. I certainly did that, um, had an experience, an introduction with John, who's written several leadership books himself, and uh, the two of us really just hit it off, and I can touch on that a little later, but um, we just had this general interest in fly fishing, and we had an interest in business and leadership in general, uh, especially a whole mentoring side of things. It's something I think we we, uh, simultaneously get enjoyment out of. And so the two of us banged our heads against the wall a little bit on some ideas and then came up with this concept of, you know, let's interview um, executive leaders from the fly fishing community and have them tell the stories of what they've learned on the river and how it's applied to business and vice versa, what they've learned in business and how it's applied to the water. And so we really just dove in. We we ended up interviewing uh, 70 plus uh, executives from around the globe, and then getting notes from that and inserting it into the book as excerpts. Now, along with that, um, John and I devised a set of principles that we believed in uh, regarding uh, leadership and built that out as almost like a curriculum within the book and then um, inserted the stories where we could. Now, I'll have to admit, John, John's a writer. Uh, he's a smart guy, way smarter than I am, and he did the majority of the writing. I did uh, a, a small portion of the writing, some bios, um, helped organize a lot of the conceptualization of the book, uh, and then I'm uh, uh, aiding in a lot of the marketing side of it as well. So, you know, it's a very um, par- a very big, good partnership for us. We, we uh, complement each other well. Can I ask you, Christian, how did you, first off, how did you come up up with a list of people to interview for this book. I love, I love where you're going with this because I, I think that what what I like about it is I think fly fishing is a thread that uh, you know unites a lot of people, but it's a lot deeper than fly fishing. You know, when you start getting into the um, everybody you meet in this business, it's all about the relationships. Business is no different; it's all relationships. Talk to me how you pick these people and how you kind of came to have those discussions. Yeah, so. Um... I'm a, a professional in the technology industry, and my background is in sales and business development. So I'm pretty good at finding people when they don't want to be found. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was really where I started. I started on that end. And then John and I, of course, had a number of just friends and contacts over the years. Um, you know, John's got, you know, 30 some years of experience in business and leadership and he had a bunch of contacts in the fly fishing industry. I had some of my own. And then what often happens, it's just like any other networking type activity. You talk to one person, they say, oh, you really got to talk to this guy. Um, he'd be great for this concept, et cetera. And that's one of the fantastic things about the fly fishing community is, you know, so many people are involved with each other and engaged in different activities. But we all have that common ground of fly fishing, and it's like a whole other language and uh, you tend to just kind of get it, you know. Hmm. If you had to verbalize kind of 
a commonality between fly fishing and business. Did 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 things come up in during the process of these interviews with 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 the people that you talked to? I mean, is there commonalities between fly fishing and business that kind of kept kept coming up? Yeah, really. Um, from the people that we interviewed, we had two. I I would say two general kind of categories. One was the category of um, business executives or leaders or owners um, in, that actually work within the industry, the fly fishing or fishing industry. People like Tate Cunningham from uh, Moonshine Rods, uh, Jen Ripple from Gun Magazine, um, a fellow podcaster of yours, Greg Keenan, on the Fly Fishing Podcast uh, Insider or Insider Podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then outside of that, there's a whole other subsegment, which is people that are purely business people by trade, but they love to fly fish. And there's commonalities that really translated for both. And a lot of it was around um, process, um, how they broke process, uh, developed process, and a big portion of problem solving. And then there's a whole um, lot of kind of philosophical side of things, especially as it relates to leadership in general, right? Um, What they believe in uh, uh, translating and passing on from a leadering and a mentoring standpoint. Um, But all those things seem to kind of come in play. And those were, those would be some of the bigger commonalities for sure. Hmm. What was the biggest challenge? So if you had to sit back and think about this process of writing along with John Childress, what, where would you say, um, you struggled the most? Um, well, for, for John and I, the largest struggle is John is located in the UK. So he's in London. I'm in Park City. So we can meet about twice a week based upon, you know, kids' schedules, work schedules, et cetera, for about an hour maybe at a time. So that that's pretty hard. Even though things are digitally connected, um, there's a surprising amount of work and collaboration that goes into a project like this. Um, the other um, difficulty is, was in finding sponsorships. We were very lucky to actually find a sponsorship from uh, Lid Rigs. Uh, Lid Rigs is a, a nipper system that goes on to your clips onto your hat, and they have some other ideas coming out. And in fact, I believe you made that introduction to uh, Scott Wilde um, with me. Uh, on the first time I was on the show, yeah. That's, see, and that, you talk about relationships in the industry, there's a perfect example of how it's all connected. I mean, I think a lot of people that you're in business with have either had on the show or we've had conversations with, I just think that's continually, it amazes me all the time, but yeah, no, Scott's an awesome guy, and he's got uh, those line clippers he's got, the lid rig system, I I think it's uh, quite quite genius. Yeah, it's it's a really sharp product, and interestingly, Another person you had on this show, uh, John and Morgan from uh, Trestle, mm-hmm. they build the rod holders. And um, I made the, uh, the connection with Scott. We started talking. He had his first rendition of the product. Um, he knew he needed to do some work on it. I gave him some advice. And then I actually introduced him to John over at Trestle. And John and Morgan, they're, another part of their business is that they design and develop products. So they helped him develop his probably V3 um, version now, and it's it's far better than the original. It's really unique, um, et cetera. So 
the fact that that relationship was uh, created as well is just another example of how that works. And I think, you know, from my experience and writing the book and just being active in the community, that's kind of how it is. You have a bunch of uh, entrepreneurial-based spirits that are out there um, in the fly fishing community right now, and the ability to start a small business is um, way easier than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. And there's a, a lot of uh, people in uh, either my uh, age bracket, I'm 44 years old, or, or down to into their 20s that are just going, hey, I'm going to start doing my own thing. And they've got fantastic ideas, and it's the capability of doing it right now is, is uh, through the roof. We're chatting today with Christian Bacasa. He has co-authored a book along with John Childress. It is called Fly Fishing for Leadership. I love the title. Um, talk to me about leadership. What what are the keys to successful leadership based on your book? You know, there, there's a number of principles that are outlined in the book. And, and I would say from my own personal perspective, um, there, there's a couple that come to the front of mind. And that would be, I think, a huge component of leadership is mentorship. Um, you have to be willing and able to mentor people whether it's from a broad perspective or an individual perspective. And the, the closer you can get to individualizing your message, the, the, the greater ability you have to speak to your audience. And your audience is your team, right? That's, that's who you are leading. They need to buy in to um, the process or product that you're delivering. Mm-hmm. And uh, that mentorship side and guidance, I think, is a, a, a clear way to do that. Yeah. In addition to that, I would have to say that, um, you know, a big proponent of uh, being a good leader is believing, believing in yourself, believing in your team and believing in the, the story that you're telling. And when you have true belief in those items, um, it's it's infectious with the group and often your group will stand beside you and um, help you deliver that vision and, and believing often creates a beautiful picture and beautiful pictures are easy to follow and understand. I always think there's, there's so many different styles of leadership and I'm sure you probably noticed that when you did, did these interviews, like, you know, I always think in the sports world, uh, like say a coach or a manager of a team, you can, there's, there's so many ways you can come at it. There's the old school days, you know, like the old, the Mike Keenan school of kind of train of thought, the firm heavy hand, you know what I'm saying? And then, or you can have, you can have the quiet leaders that kind of show leadership through their own work ethic. Did you notice a lot of um, different styles of leadership? Oh yeah. It's, uh, it's quite common and it's really um, unique to see the different styles and then how it plays into personalities. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm very much uh, along the lines of like a servant leadership style. Uh, you know, I give you the tools, the process, and the strategy, and then I kind of come around the whole 180 and then basically ask the team, hey, what can, what can I do for you to help you be better today or help you be successful in your role today? Hmm. Um, that, that's very much my style. Now, we've interviewed people who had a, a heavy military background, and you could tell they're their style was totally different. It was very uh, much a uh, hierarchical style, a more utilitarian in nature. Um, and then there's guys like um, I made a, made a friend with a fellow by the name of Graham Ellis. Um, he has a, an amazing story, a, 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 just a beautiful mind, really. And the guy is, um, 
you know, he's really got this uh, mentality of immersion and um, his is all about the creative story and the, the, the natural principles that apply to it. So, you know, it is, it's based on personality and I think people jump around here and there and, and start to see what's working. That's the great thing about good leaders is they're not necessarily affixed to one or the other. Um, they have uh, what you call situational awareness. And that's critical to success. Now, speak to like, I think people are motivated differently. And I know when I, I've had a lot of different bosses in my career. And I'm always, I find it fascinating how people try to motivate. So um, I think if you understand who your audience is, that's 90% of the battle. Because not everybody wants to be yelled at. You know, not everybody wants, wants a cheerleader. You know what I mean? Everyone wants something different. And I just, I always think that the best leaders can kind of figure out what drives your bus. Yeah. Mark, that to me, that falls back on that example I just gave of situational awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, Each individual has their own situation that they're dealing with. And if I, we, we revert back to the, the concept that, Hey, we're all problem solvers when it comes down to it. It doesn't matter what your role is or what your title is. You're a problem solver. You're a sales executive. The problem is, is that we don't have revenue coming into the business and we don't have sales. So you need to go solve that problem itself. If you're a customer success manager, the problem is that the success of the customer isn't optimized. So you need to go do that. If you're in finance, the problem is that, you know, you, you need to make sure that the, the revenues, the debts, et cetera, are all there and in place and in proper order so that at the end of the year you become profitable. So if you really root it back to that problem-solving mentality, think about it. There's going to be different ways to approach that that are going to affect people differently. Um, there's personality traits that are different. There are drivers and motivators that are different. And that can not only change by person, but it can change by year or month or day, et cetera. I've got guys and uh, in, in gals on my team. Um, some are motivated by, um, you know, wanting to be better than the others besides they're extremely competitive. Others are motivated by, they want to just generate as much income as they can. And then I think most, most, and I would bet studies would support this. Most are motivated by, feeling a sense of reward and accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I that's think that that's team. probably... That's that team building thing. Yep. I think when you're all pulling, and the best teams aren't always the strongest teams. We all know that. It's always the teams that come together. And I think business is no different that way. If, if you get everybody kind of doing their role to the best of their ability, you almost can't lose. Yeah, and there's there's a big sense of of a tribe. I mean, Seth Godin talks about that, right? Um, uh, Being part of a tribe. We all kind of want that. We want to have a group or a subset to be able to um, talk to and work with on a day-to-day basis that we can relate to. Most people don't enjoy conflict all that much. They like to be challenged, but they don't enjoy conflict. And so... Um, having a tribe in a group of people that you can relate to and that you can express yourself to and they can understand, mm-hmm. that's typically a very big motivator for most. 
You know, you know, you're talking about. You, I find this fascinating. So you're talking basically to a fly fishing tribe, aren't you, with this book and a business yeah. tribe, <laughs> and combining the two. Yeah. You know, um, and what I like about that is, um, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and and they were driving home this: the riches are in the niches. So the more you can niche down on something, not just a book on business or leadership, but a book on business leadership and fly fishing, that's kind of um, it's unique. And uh, I think you know, there's a you probably shocked uh, i would assume at at the cross-section of people that would be interested in that because you're drawing from more than one area yeah it is it has been pretty shocking i think for us um you know one of the big elements that kind of came out of the book was understanding that there's all kinds of walks of life that um can relate to fishing and business and although you may not be an avid fly fisherman or you have never tried fly fishing before in your life, you've probably seen a river runs through it. You can relate to fishing in some way because you've probably either gone fishing at one time in your life or you've had some kind of correlation or, or aspect of your life that was related to fishing, whether it's a story from a grandfather or, you know, whatever. But just about anybody can relate to fishing. Then you start to throw in the business element and leadership element. And most people either crave to be led or they are in a leadership position or they're juxtaposed in between they're being led and they're trying to get into a leadership position. So it really does speak to a very wide audience. Mm -hmm. Um, But by providing these two segments, it, it does niche it down a little bit. You were talking earlier about situational awareness. I, I love I love that verbiage and giving people the tools. I think the best bosses, best leaders in companies, you know, let people do their job and 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 support them with with the tools. And and that's I think in my mind that's that's a supportive you know leader. Christian, let's talk about your story, your personal story, because I, I it is quite a, a motivating, fascinating um tale and i i love hearing you talk about it um why don't you talk about your journey to where you're at now in the fly fishing world and and writing this book but how you came from the world of endurance athletics climbing ski mountaineering all that and and walk us through the the health situations and and not the cole's notes let's go deep on this one okay yeah um always glad to share my story it's if i can help one person with it um, you know, that, that's a big reward for me. I essentially was in endurance, endurance athletics. That's what I did. I enjoyed it wholeheartedly. I moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Utah, uh, straight out of college because I wanted to follow a, a climbing career and path, uh, as well as, um, you know, mountain biking and skiing, et cetera. And so, yeah, I, I made that move, right? I started my family out in Utah. I continued on that path and I, um, you know, did everything from, you know, climbing around the world to uh, skiing and ski mountaineering and, uh, you know, racing single speed mountain bikes on, uh, you know, 100 plus mile races, et cetera. So the endurance thing was, it was embraced heavily. Um, and it, Frankly, it was a large segment of my life. You have to dedicate a lot of time for endurance, and it was a very big segment of my life. Unfortunately, uh, my 35th birthday, I went out for a training ride, 
and I rode about 140 miles on a single speed and um, came back, felt fantastic and was thinking, oh yeah, I got this upcoming race. I'm going to podium. This is going to be just great, great, great. That was on a Friday, September 23rd. And then um, two days later, I had barbecue with some friends and I started to feel like I had a cold. Uh, and I remember saying to my friends, yeah, I didn't feel like I got a little bit of a head cold. I don't know. Maybe I rode a little too hard the other day. Mm-hmm. And uh, turns out it wasn't a head cold. After seeing uh, you know, my general practitioner and going back several times and being put on meds, et cetera, just wasn't going away. And so I saw another doctor and then another doctor and over a series of probably six months, I went from having a head cold to having this horrible cough and just feeling exhausted all the time and struggling day to day to just keep my energy up. And and I kept seeing these doctors and, and frankly, they didn't know what was going on. They kept guessing and I shouldn't say guessing, but they kept trying to diagnose, but couldn't. And, um, it became very difficult on me because I felt honestly, and I I've told this to others and they, that have gone through similar things and they just shake their nod their head. Yes, 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 yes. And you start to feel like you're crazy. Mm. Um, you start to feel like I feel sick. I'm telling people I'm sick and they're telling me I'm okay, but I'm not okay. I know I'm not. The difficulty was, and this happens very often is you, you become ill, you have these acute um, symptoms, but then you can't get in to see a specialist for a week or two where your acute systems are gone or even for a few days and your acute systems or symptoms are gone and it's very hard to diagnose. And I remember my father saying to me, I don't know how they missed it. I don't know how they missed it, et cetera. And I said, dad, you could take your car in to get diagnosed and we as humans built our cars know them inside and out and we can't diagnose it. Yeah, often. true. Yeah, good point. Imagine the body and how complex that is. So that I think brought a little bit of solace to him. Still very difficult seeing his son go through what I went through. But um yeah, I after about six months I started feeling pretty good and I had a friend that said, let's go for a ride. We went for a nice road ride and uh, I was like, yeah man, I feel I'm feeling good. Maybe I'm getting better. And sure enough, the next day by five o'clock, I was, I was back to the worst I had felt again. And, um, I told my, my, uh, my then wife, um, Hey, you know what? Just take me to the emergency room. Now the symptoms are high. I've got good insurance. I'm just going to tell them to put me in a bed until they figure out what's going on. And sure enough, we went down, went to the emergency room. Um, they, told the doctor, put me in a bed. You know, I don't want to leave until I know what's going on. He said, okay, got to tell you, we might not figure it out right away, but we'll do some basic tests to start. Let's take an x-ray, et cetera. Comes back from the x-ray and goes, Christian, I hate to tell you this, but I'm about 95% sure you have a lymphoma. If you were older, maybe you had a fungal disease or something going on in your lungs, but I'm a former lymphoma patient and I'm about 95% sure we're going to do some biopsies Uh, Why don't you go home for the night? And frankly, Mark, I was happy. I was excited and almost ecstatic to a point that they finally Mm. knew something wasn't right and we were on a path to recovery. Well, and you're not crazy, Um, right? You're not imagining all this. Yeah. You know, some some validation, right? Right. The validation, a sense of relief in a way. 
um, little did I know, you know, how difficult it was going to be. Um, not only difficult for me, but difficult for my family, my friends. Um, but yeah, you try to look at the positive things and there, there have been, I, there have been so many positive things that have come out of it. Just wish I could have learned them in a different way. Mm. Um, so long story short, uh, on that end, I was diagnosed with stage four sheet. 4C Hodgkin's disease. That's a lymphoma. Um, I had the lymphoma in my upper chest around my heart and around my left lung and a little bit down in my diaphragm. And we went through a series of chemotherapy, which worked really well out of the gate and then stopped. Um, and then we went through another chemotherapy and another type of chemotherapy, et cetera. And I went through six different types of chemotherapy. We didn't get the results we needed, so we started to look for alternatives. I was the first to receive brentuximab, SGN35, which is an uh, uh, antibody treatment um, that is experimental at the time. Um, that didn't work. In fact, that made me break out in what was like poison ivy over my entire body, which was pretty insane. Wow. Uh, and then I went from that into radiation treatment. I had several months of radiation treatment, and then from radiation treatment, I had what they call high-dose chemotherapy, which kills all of your white blood cells and, and uh, essentially stops your immune system from working. And the, the reason we did that is because I received what they call an aloe stem cell transplant. And that transplant um, basically is kill all your white blood cells and kill your immune system because it's not technically working enough to combat the cancer. And so we need to reboot your immune system. And in fact, because your cancer is so advanced, we're not going to reboot it with your own um, immune system. Again, we're going to give you an entirely new immune system, and that's from a donor. So my sister donned, uh, acted, acted as a donor for her, her stem cells. And, um, yeah, I received her stem cells. So now I have her immune system in my body. So that wow. presents a whole nother level of complication. And that was about two and a half years of treatment. I'm now about almost 10 years, uh, June 12th will be in 10 years, mm -hmm. uh, since, since my uh, disease started. And, um, yeah, that, that stem cell, uh, treatment unfortunately results in what they call graft versus host disease. And um, from a technical side, it's best understood if you think about someone who maybe had a heart transplant, you hear them talk about um, uh, uh, rejection. In that scenario, the body is using its own immune system and it looks at that heart as a foreign object and it says, hey, Reject that heart. Reject that heart. It's foreign. It doesn't belong here. It doesn't look like it belongs here. So your immune system attacks it and rejects it. But what your doctors do is they put you on immunosuppressants. So they suppress your immune system so it doesn't attack quite as much. And then eventually they hopefully get to a symbiotic relationship. Well, in my scenario, I received my sister's stem cells, created her immune system in my body. So her immune system looks at my entire body and says, that's all wrong. Attack all of it and get rid of all of it. So I went through a long period of immunosuppressants and anti-inflammatories and et cetera, et cetera. And 
those things are very good for some things, but very bad for other things. So I had to have a hip replacement and I have my shoulders, the bones of my shoulders are, for lack of a better term, rotting. Um, they're going through a necrosis standpoint. So you get these side effects, but I had to find something to replace what I had lost. And that was my endurance side. Mm. All this activity that I had spent and had so much passion for. And thankfully, I had some really great friends. Um, and these guys saw what I was going through and they invited me on a fly fishing trip. I had fished cannon worms and crankbaits and stuff as a kid and uh, never fly fished. And they were like, hey, look, we do this guy's trip to Montana every year and it's inexpensive and it's super fun. We go take personal pontoons and we float the Madison or, you know, this river or that river. And this year it happened to be in Ennis and we went up, floated the Madison for, I think, 10 days. And it was like fly fishing boot camp. And I came back from that with uh, this just raging passion to be outside again. And um, this was something that I could do because I could walk a little bit and rest and walk a little bit and rest and, and still have a lot of fun and be mentally stimulated and have intellectual conversation with adults again and all those different things. So hmm. it was really um, a godsend for me. And, and uh, you know, really, in all honesty, kind of saved my life because uh, what I was going through was very difficult um, from a mental perspective. It sounds like, I mean, looking back at your endurance athletic career before, before your health incident, the, it seems to me that you are very focused. You're, you're just, you're all in. It's not like, it's not 90%. It's not 95%. It's a hundred percent. And would you say that fly fishing was kind of that tipping point for you where you could, I mean, heck, you got a business based around it. You've wrote a book around it. It has basically become your life. It has. It's, um, it's become a big component of my life and, it falls right along with a lot of the endurance stuff. Uh, you know, I think I spoke to this on your last, our last podcast. A big part of endurance is um, breaking problems in the blocks. Most people look at a problem and they look at it from end to end. And one of the things that endurance and especially climbing um, taught me was to look at a problem and break it into segments. And those segments should be digestible. So I think of it as like snackable content, right? So if I look at a problem area as in little bites and little snacks along the way to an end goal of a meal, that's much easier to digest than it is to go, oh man, I got to eat that whole thing. It's the whole adage of how do you eat an elephant? Uh, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. You know, you don't try to stick the whole thing in your mouth. So having that mentality, I think really set me up for success. It set me up for success on beating my disease. Cause I didn't look at it as I got to get past this cancer thing. I looked at it as I got to get past this next minute. I got to get past this next hour or this day, or it, something's going to happen for this month. And even still uh, year to year, I get stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being able to break things into blocks and understand that there's um, steps to an end goal. Uh, really helps. And it's the same thing. Creating a business was that way. Um, learning how to tie flies was that way. Um, you know, all those different scenarios for me is, uh, it, it's very relatable. When you guys wrote fly fishing for leadership, was it that way also like breaking it into, into blocks or chapters or 
just sections, manageable kind of small bits to uh, until you got to completion? Yeah, um, you know, originally the discussions that I had with John, so I met John through LinkedIn. Um, I had uh, built a group for fly fishing and executives on on LinkedIn, and John saw it and reached out to me, and John had this idea of, hey, you know, I have this curriculum around leadership principles, and I've, I've related to fly fishing. Um, I, I see that you do these trips and camps and things. I was thinking of maybe putting together camps for executive leaders to go through the curriculum, et cetera, and, you know, spend a few days with us, and we talk about leadership, we talk about you know, um, fly fishing and the principles and how they translate and then go out and use that as examples on the water and then have these discussions and forums in the evening and we get people from different industries that could relate and, you know, network, et cetera. And I just love the idea and we talked about it and how to market it and how to get it together and maybe go get some sponsors to help and even had people like Orvis on board to help us with that. Um, and then unfortunately COVID hit. And, um, John and I looked at it it's like, well, hey, it doesn't look like anyone's going to be traveling for this kind of stuff right now. Um, well, let's just put it on hold. And and at the time, I said to John, you remember how you had that curriculum? Why don't we write a book? Because he had written three other leadership books. And he liked the idea. I liked the idea. And the two of us together just started running with it. So did that turn into and, a Skype um, a Skype thing, uh, you know, over to the UK? Yeah. Or how did, how did you uh, contact each other just by phone? Yeah, he's he's uh, he's in the UK, so we started using Skype. Uh, every once in a while, we use Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, just really depends on the flavor of the day, but um, yeah, it's worked out pretty well. Pretty yeah. well. Where can we find this book at? Um, is it Amazon? Is it through a website? What's the best way to get our hands on this book, Fly Fishing for Leadership? The the best way to get a hold of the book is at uh, our website, which is www.flyfishing.com leadership.com um we always market on my instagram account which is at dupafish that's d-u-p-e-a fish or you can find it on facebook page which we have uh, an at dupafish facebook page we have a fly fishing leadership facebook page uh, i'm available on linkedin under christian bacasa that's b-a-c-a-s-a um, yeah, there's there's a number of areas, but the best place is our website, uh, www.flyfishingforleadership.com. Good stuff. So let's talk about fishing. That's what we're all about here. So how's your year been? I mean, obviously it's been an odd one for everybody, but did you manage to get some trips under the belt? Yeah, so um, we didn't stop fishing. That's the good thing. <laughs> Uh, I definitely did a few more local trips this year, did some trips up to Montana, uh, Idaho, uh, of course, in around um, Utah and the Salt Lake area, just pretty regularly, but I got a trip into uh, the Nacknack River um, in Alaska. Hmm. That was an absolutely fantastic trip, got into some char and big rainbows, uh, so that, that's a really fun trip there. Um, and then uh, I also have a trip planned in February to go down to Mexico um, and do some fishing there. Going to do some fishing for uh, billfish, probably dorados, maybe some roosters if we can find them. 
um, et cetera, but, uh, that'll be a nice trip. And then, oh yeah. In between there, um, I went to Louisiana, um, and fish for reds. So, uh, that's a good trip. And then I, my business partner in Dupafish, Todd Jurgensen is going to be going back to the white river. We typically do a white river trip every year. This year I decided to go to New Mexico instead. Um, but we do a white river trip as well. And that's with, um, the Dally Ozark, uh, fly fishing out there. And then those guys do a great job for us every year. And that river produces some amazing Brown. So good trip to have on. You can't go too far wrong fishing the white, the white river. I mean, no, man, there's some pigs in that system for sure. Well, that's, sounds- yeah, there's, there's some hogs. And it's the thing I like about that river is, um, Although they may raise the flows or lower the flows throughout the day, um, it's a pretty predictable system. You seem to be able to go any time of the year and get into decent fish. Um, in Louisiana and the Reds trip is in the in the fall time um, very predictable like that as well. Now we're talking about doing a summer trip down there as well because we understand there's some other uh, places to go and species to, to work for and we'll have some updates for the group on that as we after we we do that but um we're pretty excited about doing something like that in the summer too well it sounds like you've been keeping pretty busy i mean that's uh that's quite a few trips for a crazy crazy year so um yeah all on top of the day job right <laughs> well that's that's always the challenge isn't it is to get these trips in get 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 the waiters wet but also uh you know when you're working full-time job it's it's uh you know, yeah. you got a few days yeah, a year, got to take advantage, right? Right. The reality is, is, uh, almost all of us are weekend warriors and you, know, you just try and make the best that you can out of it and get as many hall passes from the family and, and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, it works pretty well. You get any crazy fishing stories out of those? I always like to kind of, you had a good one for me last time we chatted. Anything weird happened to you in the last uh, couple of years since we spoke? Oh yes. I have a really good one actually. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the fishing that was crazy, but it's the relationships and the fun that come out of the trips. Sure, um, let's, let's hear it. Uh, let's see here. So I talked about the uh, the White River and the Louisiana trips. So those are two kind of annual trips that uh, I go on, and we go with uh, a couple of my good friends and uh, on both of those trips. And... Um, Let's see, last year in November, we went to the Louisiana. And oddly, the first day of the trip, um, you know, we go out fishing, come back. I wake up the, the next day and I'm kind of rolling around in bed and I can hear this crackling in my bed. What the heck is going? What's that noise in my bed? It sounds like a plastic bag. Sure enough, it is a plastic bag. Go figure. One of my good buddies ate half of his lunch sandwich and thought he'd have some fun. And he threw the half a sandwich in the bag in my bed. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Fun little trick, you know, plan your friends. Well, being the guy that I am, I retaliated. I took the sandwich and I put it back in his bed. <laughs> well, this was day two of a, you know, four day trip. So that sandwich got passed around a few days in a couple different beds and we're all chuckling about it, of course, over drinks and everything else. Stupid guy, human, right? Uh, end of the trip comes, it's back in my bed. And 
I go, okay, these guys are going to pay the price. So I took the sandwich and I shoved it in my buddy's rod too. (laughs) (laughs) So of course he went home, maybe a month later he found it, (laughs) but he didn't say anything. So he stuck it in his freezer. He waited until February when we went to the White River, and he got a little payback, and I didn't know about it. He came to the White River, and he shoved it in the bottom of my big Sims rod tube that holds a handful of rods, and he packed it in there as if it was a black powder gun. I had no idea. So I went home. Well, this past July... I went to Idaho to fish the Spring Creek with another buddy. And we pull up to the picturesque, beautiful Spring Creek. And if you haven't been there, there are very few places that are as beautiful as that water. It is crystal, crystal clear. When you pull up, there are bugs everywhere. You're right on the water and you cannot help but have a watering mouth for fishing lodger there. So we're so excited. It's my first time there. I've been talking about it and thinking about it. And I've watched the Todd Moen movies where they're lighting it up on PMDs and I'm excited getting ready. And I reach for my rod tube and I pull it out. Granted, I've been in this rod tube several times, but something was different. It must have gotten cold overnight or something. Because when I pulled my rod out, that sandwich flopped out. And it was as if it had trapped death underneath it. Because the stench was so bad. Here, my other buddy and I are standing in front of Spring Creek, dry heaving from the stench. It's so bad. And we're not only dry heaving, but I'm crying, laughing. Because I know exactly what it is. And it's this almost completely black and odd white colored sandwich that had been shoved in my bag. And I'm trying to explain to my buddy Peter and I'm laughing and I'm heaving at the same time. And uh, yeah, those boys got me back pretty good. So, <laughs> Remind me not uh, to play. A definitely, bit. definitely entertaining. That That's what you call holding the grudge, keeping it going and <laughs> Remind me not to play any practical jokes on you. I have a feeling that would come back to bite me. Wow. <laughs> what kind of sandwich was it? Do you remember originally? Um, I don't know, but it was probably like a uh, a ham and cheese or turkey and cheese sandwich with you know some lettuce and pickles. And yeah, we we usually go pretty standard fare down there for lunches. That is. Um... That's quite a story. That went on. How long did that that whole thing go? Like a year or more? Yeah, just just about a year in wow. time. That's an old sandwich. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, you know what? I got to give you credit. I knew you'd come up with a good one. Wow. <clears throat> All right. Well, hey, listen. I I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Is there anything uh, we should talk about the book before we let you go? Fly fishing for leadership. We talked about where you can find it. Um, maybe throw your Instagram handle out there so we can follow along on some of your uh, fishing trips and uh, patterns and whatnot. Yeah, yes. So, um, again, you can find a book on uh, flyfishingforleadership.com. 
My Instagram handle is at dupafish, which is D-U-P-E, a fish. And um, regarding the book, yeah, there's some really neat stuff in there. There's a little bit about my story, a bio, John, of course, his story. And John's got an amazing story himself. Um, uh, the, the guy was an advisor for a number of businesses regarding the Three Mile Island incident. So uh, hmm. he's got just this plethora of information. In fact, he would be a fantastic guest for the show. He's uh, you know, fished uh, Triassic a number of times and a bunch of other areas and just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, great person. The book is uh, fairly expensive, not only regarding the leadership principles that we cover, but the number of stories from these people that we've interviewed. Again, over 70 executives from um, industries across the, the globe um, and locations across the globe. There's some beautiful photographs in there, all black and white. Um, and there's a number of items that are just covered um, throughout the book that are really unique stewardship, um, getting women on the water, uh, things like that. We have, a, a again, a great um, uh, sponsor in Lidrig. You can check them out at lidrig.com. That's L-I-D-R-I-G.com. Uh, Scott's a, a, not only a great guy and a, a younger guy that started that business from scratch, and um, it's just an amazing product. I use it all the time, more and more. In fact, when I don't have it, I find myself falsely reaching for my nippers on my hat all the time. So, yeah, check it out. Um, let us know what you think, and um, I'm looking forward to the next one for sure. Well, thanks for doing this, Christian. We've been chatting today with Christian Bacasa. He, along with John Childress, have written a book. You should pick it up just in time for the holiday season. I know I'm going to look for it uh, as soon as we get off this call. Fly Fishing for Leadership, um, Keys to Kind of Successful Leadership, Lessons in Fly Fishing and Life. Sounds Sounds like a keeper. Christian, thanks for doing this, man. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. And let me do this. Um, Anybody that listens to the show and wants to purchase a book, you can get a copy of the book for 30% off by using FlyFish97 as a a discount code. That's FlyFish97. Perfect. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.